Last week we talked about making the jump into the nonprofit space. This week we're discussing systems that cause nonprofits to soar. After over a decade of nonprofit leadership impacting thousands, we hit a wall. We started asking ourselves, how can we go beyond personal success and leave a legacy that lasts far beyond our lifetimes? A job change and a couple of pivots into for-profit leadership later? We're on the search to get that question answered. If you're a leader who cares deeply about supporting nonprofits from the inside or from the outside, this podcast is for you. We believe that the world needs what you are going to leave behind, and it's our passion to help you find that thing and build it. I'm Ted. And I'm Lisa. Welcome to the Legacy Builders Movement. Welcome back to the podcast today. We are so excited because we are being joined by George Yakubian. He is from SOAR, the Society for Orphaned Armenian Relief. Um, he is the founder and the executive board chairman. Uh, George has a really interesting story because he actually started this nonprofit after adopting his daughter from Armenia. Um, but he is not only a nonprofit leader, he also works full time as a criminal defense attorney. Mm. Um, so as we know so many of our listeners have multiple things going on. George has a lot going on in his life and has understood the value of making an impact. George, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Um, first of all, could you please share just a little bit about your background? I know your nonprofit started from the adoption of your daughter, um, which I think so many of our listeners and yeah. so many nonprofits are started from a personal experience. So can you share a little bit kind of how all this got started? Sure, I believe. So it was the um, early part of 2004, and my wife and I were, we had just gotten married a couple of months when we were engaged. And we had we had decided during our engagement try to have kids. So in the spring of 2004, um, we talked about it, started to get serious about it. We decided that we wanted to adopt from Armenia, and where I have an ethnic connection. My, 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 my wife is not Armenian, she's Italian, but um, we, we knew people over there that were involved in the social system, so I thought it would be a good place to start. Cool. And, the, and, and international adoption just made sense for us at the time. So we started the process here in the U.S. Back then, it wasn't too complicated. Um, we, we thought it would take maybe a year and a half from start to finish. There were some domestic procedures we, we did during the first part of 2004. And then that summer, we, we went to Armenia just to visit uh, some of the orphanages and kind of get a sense for options might be. And during that trip, we had the opportunity to visit several of the orphanages that housed very young children, children under the age of six. And during one of those uh, orphanage visits, we, we saw the, the child that would ultimately be our daughter. But in addition to seeing her for the first time, um, I realized that the conditions of the orphanages were just very, very poor. So after spending a couple of weeks in Armenia that summer, this is summer of 2004, uh, I got back and started thinking about, you know, what I could do to, to the orphanages and the orphan children who are in Armenia. And at the time, there were, as I recall, maybe 15 or 16 orphanages in Armenia, all housing different populations of children. And I thought, well, why not a nonprofit? whose mission focused exclusively on orphaned Armenian children. 
So in the fall of 2004, I, I spent a couple of months doing some background research, just making sure primarily that there wasn't another organization out whose mission aligned to what I wanted to do. And to just kind of understanding what the process would be for forming a charity, an international charity, um, and how we would ultimately want it to be set up. So I did that over the course of the fall. SOAR was formally um, registered as a 501c3 in November of 2004. All of our paperwork was completed late that year. And then over the course of months, we finalized our board of directors. We got our squared away. We talked about internal procedures and then everything was sort of formally launched in the spring of 2005. And that was right around the time that we were finishing up the adoption process as well. Uh, we were in Armenia March of 2005 and brought Liliana home right around her first birthday, mm. which was uh, April, mid-April of 2005. Wow. And that's how, that, that's how, that's how everything kind of started. I love that you uh, like what you said about just having to go through the, the processes and knowing, OK, this is going to take about this long. We also want to, like, figure these things out. I think your, your background in law probably gave you a good a good idea of how long things were probably going to take. I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of nonprofit, you know, maybe people who want to start nonprofits or whatever, they're kind of like, OK, well, yeah, we'll just we'll just start a nonprofit. It's like, well, OK, hold on. You know, there are some processes that need to go into this. Um, and you kind of had that. From the get-go, making sure you had your board of directors lined up, making sure all the paperwork was complete and all that stuff. And that's not to say that people shouldn't start nonprofits because of the paperwork or whatever that it's involved. But just knowing what you're stepping into is a big deal. That's really good. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I would agree with that entirely. I mean, from a, uh, from a paperwork standpoint, it's relatively easy to start a nonprofit corporation. If, if, assuming you have a a mission that fits squarely within the charitable realm. The paperwork side is easy. But in terms of, I think it's important to understand where you want to see the organization going in the long term to appreciate what the commitment is and is going to have to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that was one of the things that you know, I thought about from the very beginning, which is, you know, how do I see this organization 50 years from now? You know, af- after I'm gone, you know, how do I want how do I want to leave it? And, and that that I think was one of the biggest challenges that we had. Because it makes you have to step back and not just think about what can I do personally, but what can this organization do living on beyond me? <laughs> and that's that's a well, tough that, that's, one, right? That, that- yeah, that, that, that's the key, because I mean, I, I think it's relatively easy if you if you don't have, uh, I, I think having an international charity is is certainly than a domestic one for lots of different reasons. But I think if ultimately you want to have a charity, which we are now, which we were not back in 2005, it really does require it required me and, and then subsequently our board of directors to kind of look to to lay out a vision for not just the short term but the long term as well and stick to that vision which, which was important absolutely because <laughs> just from a from a standpoint of law you need to you need to follow through on what you're saying you're going to do on paper 
because <laughs> that status is not uh, is not something that you can just play with, right? That 501c3 status, like there are rules around it, right? When you went to Armenia, I'm sure that you saw a lot of different need. Um, so often we talk to leaders who go into an area and they're like, I want to help with education, but there's also the food and there's also the homes and there's also, and it just grows um, to the point where it's hard to figure out what you're going to focus on. Um, did you find that to be a challenge at all while you were there seeing so much need, I'm sure in other areas as well and choosing, we're going to solely focus on the orphanages. What was that process like? So when we were, and what you're describing is something that we do kind of year in, year in and year out. It wasn't just at the very beginning, but mm. one of the things that I noticed when I was visiting the orphanages in 2004, 2005, the, the greatest need um, seemed to be hygiene. And the, the kids, the kids at the orphanages um, were well fed. That wasn't an issue. Clothes at the time were not an issue as well. But the one thing that I noticed um, going through the facilities at the time was that the bathrooms were very dilapidated. There was, a, I didn't see a lot of soap hand towels, toilet paper, clean facilities, etc. So that was one of the things that we emphasized in the very beginning. And, and keeping in mind, when we when you're just starting a nonprofit, you have no idea what your revenue is going to be. You have <laughs> right. no idea what sort of distributions you're going to be able to make. You have no idea how your charity is going to be well received by donors. So it's not like we were we were jumping into a into a situation where we had you know millions of dollars to spend. I mean, I can I can <laughs> I mean I can remember the first time we got a hundred, and so we had to prioritize. Assuming we did start getting in voter dollars, how were we going to prioritize them, et cetera? And the first couple of years before we started to expand um, nationally and internationally, the, our distributions were relatively modest. Would accept donations of new clothes, do the occasional bathroom renovation, which was you know three, four, five thousand dollars. That was a lot of money for us uh, back then, and we would support Christmas parties, holiday and excursions for the kids. And then over the years, as the types of institutions that we have supported have expanded, not only do we support orphanages, but we have refined our population to include different kinds of residential child care facilities, which is a term of art um, in the kind of orphanage um, social science realm. And um, we also support day centers. We support orphan summer camps, special boarding schools, transitional centers, which are for older teenage girls who have outgrown the traditional orphanage, but who aren't ready for independent living yet. Sure. Because we took on a variety of different facilities, the needs have changed, evolved over the years. Hygiene tends to be um, a priority, has always been a priority for us because it's always a priority for me. I mean, I'm a neat freak around. I, I think that <laughs> I think that he's kind of adapts to its leader. I go around the house. 
I, I like clean bathrooms and clean counters, and that, uh, I, uh, I think that's critical for a child being raised in the facility to appreciate cleanliness and, and proper hygiene for lots of different reasons. I but in addition to hygiene, over the years, we've done everything from uh, supporting educational pursuits to medicine, to food and nutrition, to addressing um, human rights violations or human rights concerns in the facilities. Um, so I mean, everything that you residential child care facility might want the facilities that we support know they can come to us. If the thing that we can do um, financially, uh, we do it. If, if for some reason we can't, we try to procure um, grant opportunities to support those efforts too. Yeah, that's phenomenal. It sounds like you have a really clear vision of who you're helping, which is great, but you've left it open enough so that the right action um, and the right um, opportunities can remain flexible as the vision is carried out. Um, sometimes when we talk to nonprofits and we're working with them, they'll say, oh, we always have to do X, Y, and Z. But sometimes X, Y, and Z no longer fits with what the vision is because as culture changes over time, as the people you're trying to care for change over time, as you're taking on new roles, not just doing orphanages, but doing other, part, other types of residential centers, um, those needs, those X, Y, and Z sometimes become A, B, C, D, E, and F instead. Um, and so recognizing which thing has to stay static, and that's the vision and the heart and what we're trying to accomplish. But the things that can be changed are, the are, details. are some of the details <clears throat> and some right. of the ways that things are executed on. So yeah, we've I, seen we've seen organizations, you know, paint themselves into a corner saying, you know, this is the exact way that we're going to do this. And then they learn a couple years down the road that Oh, there's a better way to actually solve the problem we're trying to solve, but we can't do that. And I'm like, ah, I'm like change. You got to figure out a way. You got to figure out a way to do it better. Because I mean, it, when you're doing when you're doing what you think you're doing, sometimes you're actually hurting those organizations, right? You're not actually propping them up in the way they need to be propped up. Um, and so it's really important to have that flexibility. And I love that you guys have built that into your stuff. So tell us a little bit about like what are some of the challenges that you have faced in um let's just start with like fun fundraising like what are some of the things that you learned over the years uh with fundraising so the, i would say the biggest challenge that we have had with fundraising um and this is something we knew we knew we were going to um have to address from the very beginning and did address from the beginning is especially with an international charity is quality control mm. and by that i mean somebody asking us, George, how do I know that the money that I'm donating to SOAR is actually going to benefit the intended population, which in this case is an orphan population in Armenia. Now, we also support, um, there are several orphan Armenian orphanages in Lebanon that we support, one, an orphan summer camp in Javakh, Georgia, and a special boarding school in Artsakh. So while, while most of our work is in Armenia, um, there are other areas around the world that we support as well. But the question is the same. How do I know that the money is, is actually going to be used properly? And we anticipated that question from, from the very beginning. So we um, devised a fairly stringent quality control procedures that we insist on following from start to finish. 
So when I'm talking to a new donor or the director of a foundation or perhaps uh, somebody who's coming on to lead one of our chapters and they ask that question, I say to them, listen, this, this is what we do. If some, and the example that I typically give is, what if somebody wants to donate $5,000 for a bathroom renovation? How do we know the money is actually going to be used for that purpose? And uh, my response to them is like this. Well, the first thing that the donor or the chapter or we are going to get is our staff is gonna go to the facility. They are going to take pictures of the existing bathroom space to be able to demonstrate to everybody that this bathroom actually does need renovation. That's step number one. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind that I visit the facilities multiple times a year. So when I get pictures of these facilities, I know it is of the facility that we're actually interested in supporting because I've been to all of them multiple times. <laughs> so now we have this the, the picture of the existing dilapidated bathroom. And then the next step, of course, is to get an estimate. And we treat it in Armenia the same way you would renovate your own bathroom here. You open up the you open up the yellow pages, you call a couple of contractors, you get estimates, you decide on who you're going to hire based on cost, experience, location, timeline, etc. And that's what we do in Armenia. And we, we have about maybe 14 or 15 full-time staff in Armenia. We have an an executive director. We have contractors now, of course, that we've been using for years, but we get a couple of estimates based on this renovated bathroom that we want to do. Then we decide internally which contractor are we going to use. Then we execute a contract with that contractor. And the terms there are like the terms here. You pay a third up front, a third midway, a third at the end, or a half up front and half at the end. And uh, once the uh, once we get that contract in place, we uh, and of course we're in touch with the donor and the chapter, and the money has already been received. But the idea here is then we wire the money to Armenia. The contractor is paid pursuant to the contract. The work begins. As the work is happening, we're getting pictures during the renovation process, which we are then sending back to the donor or the chapter. At the end of the work, I mean, a bathroom renovation takes a couple of weeks, a month at the most. Um, At the end of the process, we are getting finished pictures, which are then coming back to us, going to the chapter, going to the donor. And keeping in mind, the idea is not just for the pictures to be used internally but to be put up on our website to be shared via social media hopefully the chapter if it was a chapter project is disseminating those pictures to their local supporters to to whoever to to other um, donors within their local geographic area for larger projects like a renovated bathroom we would also um, we would also get a dedication plaque that is affixed to the outside of the bathroom that says bathroom renovation funded by Society for Orphaned Armenian Relief, Los Angeles chapter, August, 2021. For larger projects and a bathroom renovation, depending upon the scope, probably wouldn't qualify as a larger project, but we have dedication ceremonies with the ministries in Armenia and the media the media come. And so there's coverage to kind of memorialize the project in that capacity. Ultimately, then of course we have 
because we are wiring money to Armenia, we can document the money going there, the money going out from our account in Armenia directly to the contractor. We decided way back when that we were never going to give money, um, except in rare circumstances, to the orphanage directors themselves. That if they needed work done within their facility, like a renovated bathroom, they would tell us if we ultimately approved the project for funding, we would be working exclusively with whatever contractor we wanted to work with. So while they are, while the directors are of course involved because it's their renovated space, they step back and let us do our thing. We handle all of the, all of the details so that we know where the money is going at all times and right. there's no reason right. to fund any money through the facility itself. And then everything kind of comes full circle. I mean, in the end, the idea is that everybody knows based on a paperwork trail of wired money and photographs, video, et cetera, that this is how the bathroom looked before SOAR renovated it, and this is how it looks now. And lo and behold, you have a you have a renovated bathroom. And of course, we always encourage people, whether it's our chapter members or, or, or other volunteers or just supporters, if they happen to be in Armenia and they say, George, is it OK if I go look at this um, facility where we where we had this renovation? The answer is, of course, I mean, you contact our staff, they'll arrange for the visit with the facility. And that's just kind of an extra layer of kind of firsthand observation of what's going on. <laughs> this wasn't on. just photoshopped. This is a real yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's important. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it sounds silly to go into that level of detail, but you don't want to be vulnerable to somebody saying, how do I know the money actually went to renovate that bathroom? No, and you're, you're if 100% you're, if you're, correct. Yeah. I mean, if you're not satisfied with a paper trail of receipts, and before, during, and after pictures and dedication plaques and, and, and videos and this and that, if that's not enough for you, then you probably shouldn't be donating to SOAR because I think we do everything <laughs> that we can possibly do I was to gonna show say, you that you, money is going there. You guys have so many, so many layers yes. of what we call it measurable impact. It's so important mm -hmm. to have those things that people can actually see where the money is going and it builds trust with the organization. I think number one reason people don't donate to organizations is a lack of trust. Right. And mm -hmm. when you, and, and I, when you set and, that and all And justifiably so. I mean, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Think, I, I think it's completely reasonable Absolutely. For, people to, to, for people to know where is their, where, where their money is going. And then continuing to, to the question, you know, for, from a fundraising perspective, what other challenges? Um, th this is less of a challenge and, and I think more of more of an advantage is that you want to be able to give people options for where they want, where where their dollars can go. Hmm. And by that, I mean, within SOAR, not only do we have 38 different institutions where donor dollars can go to, but we also have a variety of different mechanisms that donors can choose from. For example, they could donate to a specific country, at which point we might pick a facility based on need. Sometimes the donors will want to support a specific institution. For example, we get people who adopted from an orphanage in Armenia, and they want to be able to support that same orphanage where their son or daughter came from. Sometimes donors like the idea of the money being used for a specific child. 
we have a sponsorship fund. The monies are used exclusively for a child. We match donor to child. And it, like uh, our sponsorship fund is unique in that our sponsorship fund really does match a donor to a specific child, as opposed to money comes in and could be used for any child or any facility. Right. And so um, with, with that sort of one-to-one match, we also offer the opportunity for the exchange of letters and pictures. Not only does that create a, a personal connection, but again, it's a quality control mechanism where if the, if the donor thinks that the money is being used for school supplies, they can communicate with their child and the child will tell them, yes, I got all these school supplies that were, were funded by your donation. Um, And I think the other kind of continuing along this line of what options to provide donors, and this kind of relates back to being flexible in your mission, is that I I think if if you expect your charity to grow, you need to be able to add certain populations within the confines of your mission. And by that, I mean, we started out with 15 or 16 orphanages. Our mission very broadly is orphan children, but we've expanded subtly over the years to include orphaned and otherwise institutionalized children, Mm. adding special boarding schools. We have also, over the last five or six years, expanded our mission to include the entire child protection spectrum in Armenia. So not only are we working in that middle section where the kids are institutionalized, but we're also working with the front end of the spectrum, day centers that are trying to prevent institutionalization. Right. So we're working with children who are at risk of being institutionalized, working with those families so the kids don't have to be taken out of the home. Mm -hmm. And then at the back end, we're facilitating reunification. So kids who have been institutionalized, who might be ready to go home, we try to work with the facilities and the families to deinstitutionalize, reunify, and then we work with the families for a year or two to make sure the kids don't have to be reinstitutionalized. And then most recently, um, the Artsakh War started again in September of 2020, and several months before we had started a Fallen Soldiers Relief Fund. With the idea being is that if a, if a husband father um, was killed in battle, we didn't want to see his children ever have to be institutionalized. So with only the wife mother left behind, who may have been a stay-at-home mother, the idea was to provide support to that mother and her child or children, the children of a fallen soldier, and to make sure that those kids never had to be taken out of their home. So we provide support um, to the mother and family in the way of job training, job placement, grief counseling, and of course, basic humanitarian support. So these are all these are all ways that ultimately all different projects within SOAR that ultimately link back to our core mission mm-hmm. of either helping orphan children or preventing institutionalization. Wow. It's so much that you do. My brain is just, <laughs> it's, I'm like, I am, this is phenomenal. Well, I mean, the, the crazy thing is that every, every 
level of more stuff that your organization takes on. It's an order of magnitude, more level of work, more level of uh, getting the details right and making sure that the follow through is happening. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 cool that you guys have grown that over time and not just from the get go said, we're going to take this giant problem and we're going to address the whole thing. And now we have to. I mean, sometimes those those large solutions to large problems can be so big and daunting that nothing ever gets done. But mm-hmm. from the beginning, you started with hygienic, you know, just just trying to get the hygiene right, you know, and then it expands into this thing <clears throat> just from seeing the need and learning more about the culture and the countries that you're helping. It's really, really awesome. And that's something that happens, especially when people are working cross-culturally. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's still a case when someone's working and starting a nonprofit that benefits their own hometown. As you learn more about it, you recognize what could be done better or what the actual underlying needs are, not just the needs that we're seeing, but especially when you're working in a completely different culture, in a different country, um, when you're not physically hands-on all the time. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned that you have volunteers, that you have different chapters. How do you manage that from a distance and helping people become volunteers for an organization that it really doing the work out of the country. Um, because it's easy for someone to understand, oh, if you have a nonprofit where you live, you get volunteers, they come there and they work. Um, but how do you manage your volunteers and what kind of volunteer opportunities do you offer since you're not, since they're not necessarily even in the same continent? Right. So uh, when we started SOAR back in 2004 and five, we wanted to focus initially on just growing SOAR in Philadelphia. That's where we are based. That's where most of our executive board members uh, live. And we spent the first couple of years just focused on building up SOAR's reputation here in Philadelphia. Then in 2007 and eight, we decided to expand. And we added a chapter in Washington, D.C. and one in Los Angeles. And the the chapters are essentially an extension of SOAR's work here in Philadelphia. Our executive board is based here in Philadelphia. Today, our executive board is responsible for overseeing everything that is SOAR global. And we we actually have a Philadelphia chapter that is distinct from our executive board that oversees fundraising in Philadelphia. But the idea with the chapters was to create Uh, volunteer opportunities for people around the country and then the world who are interested in um, either fundraising or programmatic volunteerism in their local cities or countries. And then over the years, we have just added chapters and different sorts of initiatives that are available to our chapters. Today, we have 145 chapters around the world they contribute to our mission in a variety of different ways. Most of our U.S. chapters and European chapters are fundraising event planning chapters. It is what it sounds like. They are interested in funding some sort of project at one of the facilities that we support or a child, um, and they put together some sort of local event or campaign. The funds are then earmarked for whatever the chapter is interested in funding. In addition to the fundraising event planning chapters, we also have what we call program chapters. About maybe seven or eight years ago, 
um, a group approached me. I think they were in Switzerland at the time. And they said, George, you know, we're interested in volunteering with SOAR, but we're not sure that we can jump right into fundraising because the people around here just don't know enough about it. That created that conversation ultimately led to the creation of our program side. And our programs are academic curricula, professional curricula that are developed at the chapter level that are implemented virtually with the children in Armenia. Mm. It could be a language tutoring program. It could be professional orientation like resume building, interview skills. It could be a cultural discovery program. But at their heart, the idea of the programs is for the chapter volunteers to be working virtually directly with the kids in either Armenia or Lebanon and teaching them something. And the programs, many of our chapters are program only chapters. I mean, we have some, we have chapters in some obscure areas in the world where there are virtually no Armenians like Johannesburg, South Africa and New Delhi, India. And these chapters wouldn't exist as a part of SOAR, if not for the program side, because these yeah. chapters don't have the opportunity to fundraise for an Armenian charity in New Delhi, India, for example. Right. But the few Armenians who are a part of the chapters in these cities want to contribute to our mission in some way, and they love the idea of working directly with the kids. So we have all of our chapters um, together, maybe we have somewhere between 600 and 650 volunteers across the world. Um, we have in Armenia, like I said, 14 or 15 full-time staff. We have an executive director, an associate director, a couple of program associates. We have an eye care, a mobile eye care clinic and staff that man that. We have a dental clinic. We have staff that man that. Um, we have our own transitional center in northern Armenia. We have staff there. Ultimately, my one of my specific tasks on the executive board is to oversee all of the chapters. Mm -hmm. So it's one of my most challenging tasks because uh, for lots for lots of different reasons. But the biggest reason is because there are just so many people to oversee. Mm -hmm. So I I work primarily with the chapter presidents. And they, of course, are then responsible for their local chapter. We also have a, a development consultant on staff here in the U.S. Her role is to work with the fundraising chapters around the world and provide her expertise in the way of um, chapter development and, and fundraising. We also have a full-time management um, assistant here on staff. Her role is kind of all the technical side, website, social media, um, everything that has to do with um, all of our internal files and SharePoint and this and that. So um, the, 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 the biggest task that I have with the chapters is making sure that they have what they need from our full-time staff here in the US and in Armenia. And thankfully, our staff in Armenia are fantastic in that we have very little turnover. I think we're a great organization to work with. They only have to deal with me three or four times a year live. <laughs> <laughs> but, but except for that, 
you know, everything is being done by email, the occasional Zoom, and um, we, I think we have a fine, a, a well-oiled machine. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, it. so many, I think a lot of our listeners are listening to this and taking lots of notes because they're like, oh my gosh, this could be the future of what we're trying to do. And, and you've really laid out like a, an org structure for them and the ways to make sure that things are happening the way they're supposed to. And I, and we just both really love, I, I, I'm speaking for you, but I know that That's I know fine. that this is something that you care about too. We love that you have uh, such a clear vision and you're willing to hold the line on that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've balanced that with openness that when a group comes to you and says, hey, we want to start some programming chapters, you're not like, no, we only do it like this ever, mm -hmm. you know? And so the openness to be able to take a great idea and then implement that into what you're doing is just fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I think as well, recognizing that the volunteers are crucial to the mission being done. Um, and so if someone comes to you and says, I want to volunteer, but I don't see a spot for me, understanding that that is worth creating space for them. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes nonprofits get in their head and they're like, I don't have a spot for them, maybe down the road, versus saying there are people out there who want to help me. It's worth adjusting everything that I'm doing just a little bit in order to get uh, them I, in. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, when we... Um we're constantly trying to think. I mean, manpower, I think, is critical. Mm -hmm. And there, there are so many people around the world, Armenians and non-Armenians alike, who are interested in helping orphaned Armenian children. I mean, on a regular basis, I will get questions, George, do I have to be Armenian if to volunteer <laughs> for SOAR? And I, and, and, and I laugh at first, but I know they're asking it seriously. And the answer is, of course not. The, uh, many of our volunteers were, were not our non-Armenian former Peace Corps volunteers who spent a year, sometimes two or three in Armenia, hmm. five, 10, 15 years ago. They loved the experience of the country and just want to give back in some capacity. Non-Armenians who have adopted from Armenia, spouses of, uh, spouses of Armenians, non-Armenian spouses of Armenians who have adopted. So, um, the, the the idea is to try to find a fit for them in some way. Yeah. And the chapters really are the primary way where we bring in volunteers. And like I said, we have the we have the fundraising event planning chapters. We have the program chapters. We have some chapters happen to be a hybrid of those two. And that's OK. We also have a third type of chapter, which we call internal administrative chapters. These are chapters that are not fundraising. They're not involved on the program side, but they are there to help us if something comes along that requires help. For example, we have a chapter in Salt Lake City that is both fundraising and administrative. Their team in Salt Lake City is comprised of attorneys. So when we were putting together our employee manual, they helped us devise and revise that employee manual from an from an em em employee lawyer sort of perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we have chapters that help us with our social media. We have chapters that help us with our newsletters. These are not these these aren't fundraising chapters. They're not working directly with the kids on the program side, but again, they're they're filling a gap um, and providing a service within SOAR administratively. On a, on a purely ad hoc basis. I mean, the, the Salt Lake City chapter 
probably hasn't done anything legal-wise for us in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But if something was to come up, they're there if we need That's wonderful. Yeah, we talk with this all the time with uh, nonprofit leaders, like increase the areas that volunteers can get involved, like figure out a way to have an on ramp, you know, into your organization, because a lot of funding comes from volunteers as well. Like, if people think, oh, my big problem is funding, increase your volunteer base. And you're gonna, you're, you'll, you'll find that your funding increase. starts to grow too, because like you said, manpower is crucial. Man, we could talk all day about this, but I'm sure you, yeah, we want to restrict your time too. This is uh, fantastic stuff. We have a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And we want to ask you as well, what does the idea of leaving a legacy mean to you? So uh, I think when, when we started SOAR, and when I say we, not just me, but a couple of the other our, of our founding members who are still with, with me on the board today, the, the idea was not just to leave the, the orphanage system in, a, in Armenia in a better place um, five years from now, 10 years from now than it was when we started. But for me personally, and I think for, for several of our other board members who have children at the same age as, as my oldest daughter, Liliana, I, I think the idea was to leave behind an organization that they could then take hmm. and run and run with. So SOAR is important to me because I'm the founder, because it coincided with the adoption of my oldest daughter, because um, we brought Lily home at the same time the organization founded. So it would be nice to leave her 25, 30 years from now, this organization on its 50th anniversary hmm. to, um, to take and build kind of in her own vision. That's an awesome answer. We, we love the different answers that we get, but just to be able to leave leave something for your children to then be able to take and run with and and uh, carry out is just wonderful. Yeah. Um, George, I'm sure our listeners are interested. Where can they find you and learn more about SOAR? Uh, our website is soarsoar-us.org. Um, all of my contact information is uh, on the homepage of SOAR. The website has everything from current projects to annual reports going back 16 years. I mean, everything that we've ever done and are doing, including contact information for all of our chapters and, and me specifically here in Philadelphia is there. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me directly, uh, my email address is gyakubian, G-Y-A-C-O-U-B-I-A-N at soar-us.org. My cell phone number is on the website too. Uh, if anybody has any questions about anything that we are doing or have done or want to get involved with a chapter or want to start a new chapter, just drop me an email and I'm happy to answer any questions or help in any way. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, George. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Legacy Builders Movement. If you appreciate this podcast and find that it's valuable, the best way that you could help us is to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. To learn more about Legacy Builders, go to LegacyBuildersInternational.com. That's LegacyBuildersIntl.com. 